Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people. It rained so hard here in New Jersey the other day, it scared the hell out of me. I was driving into Philadelphia, and it starts pouring. And I don't mean like little raindrops, I mean huge, huge raindrops. It was so bad, I pulled my car over twice. And then I sat there and I said, the hell with this, I'll go back to Philadelphia later. I turned around to come home, the road starts to flood. It starts pouring even harder. I pull over to the first place. There's a liquor store. I'm sitting there for a second. The owners gave me a weird look because I didn't go in. So I left there and I pull over to a Wendy's. And not only did I pull over, but four other people pulled over. And of course, there was that one ass who's flying down Route 70 it's in New Jersey and is hydro, hydroplaning. So finally, it starts lighting up a little bit. I drive home, which is about five miles from where I was. No rain at all. That's what's crazy about the weather in New Jersey. It just, it's just nuts. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a, a wonderful actor who's had some iconic roles. And I want to talk to him because he, he had to reschedule because he was going to dance class. And I want to find out about dancing. And my guest is Mark Metcalf. How you doing, Mark? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for calling. Now, I got to ask you, you said you were going to dance. Now, dancing for me is something that I always stunk at. But I know it's very... It's a very physically demanding, but but it's probably it's probably very uh, relaxing. Well, yeah, it should be. It should be. It can be if you're doing it right. This is a class, a modern dance class that comes re- very directly out of ballet. So it uh, it requires a lot of precision, a lot of sort of small muscle precision, and uh, and we start out sitting in a. It's all. It's for people over fifty. We start out sitting in a chair, so we warm our bodies up really slowly, and then by the end of the hour, we're uh, doing some improv uh, choreography. It's a lot of fun. Now, how how did you get into that? Was it something that always you always wanted to do and dancing, or was it just something that you saw it, you heard about it, and you said, "This looks something that would what I, I would really enjoy." I've always liked dancing. I've, I danced uh, a little bit as a well. I I quit acting for about eight months uh, in 1972 and uh, took some dance classes with Eric Hawkins, who was uh, one of Martha Graham's husbands and had his own dance company. And uh, I liked it. They liked me. They asked me to, to be part of a smaller company they were starting. And I uh, I went back to acting because I realized that dancers work really, really hard and get paid absolutely nothing. <laughs> and uh and actors have a better chance of getting paid a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, but I, I've always danced, and I've always felt that I that my body, my physicality, is a major part of my acting of what I the tools I use as an actor. Vocally, my voice, which is a is a major tool, and then my body, what what messages I'm telling with my body body language, people call it. Uh, so I so I like to move. I like dancing, and I'm living here in Columbus, Ohio. And I went to see a dance, and the fellow that's sitting next to me said, "Hey, you should come to this dance class." And I started going. Now it's good. It's that's awesome. Now you're acting. You you started acting later, right? I believe you went to college to be an engineer. But did did you act earlier than before you were in college? No, I never did. I I started my sophomore year in college. My roommate said come audition for these plays that they're doing. They're doing Henry the Sixth, Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth, all three parts. The girls are really friendly in the theater department. 
Department, and that's all they had to, I had to hear. So weren't really any women in the engineering department, or not ones that were easily identifiable as women, which will probably get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but um, so I went, and he was right about them being friendly, and it was also uh, uh, sort of a madly passionate place, and I'd not seen that, having grown up the son of an engineer and uh, in the Midwest in a somewhat Calvinist uh, environment. We uh, held on to our emotions a lot, and in the theater, uh, you don't. You're, you get, as Meryl Streep says, we get paid to care, so we get paid to feel things, so, and it was, it was a revelation to me, and I just, I haven't been able to get out of it since. Now, how did you break that to your parents that you wanted to act? Seeing that your, I believe your father was an engineer, you went to school for engineering. I'm sure it's something you know. Any, I, I did stand up comedy when I got out of college. I did it for seven years. Uh-huh. It was very hard to tell my dad, uh-huh. who was a businessman. Oh yeah, dad, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to use my degree. I'm going to do stand up and go on the road. How did How did your family react when you said you wanted to act? Well, I didn't have too much contact with my family after my freshman year in college when I, in my sophomore year, when I started to act, I really sort of didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel as though I needed uh, permission. I didn't feel as though uh, uh, they had a right to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. So I just, I just did it. And uh, they were never, my mother, I think, was happier about it than my father was um, because she'd been an art major in college and so she kind of understood. She didn't think it was a very secure secure profession. But I just I just kept doing it and they began they under finally understood. I produced a movie in nineteen seventy nine, a movie called Chili Scenes of Winter for United Artists and they thought that was pretty cool because I was wearing a suit and I was acting like a grown up <laughs> But then I quit producing and went back to acting because I didn't necessarily like acting like a grown-up or wearing a suit. And uh, so they had a bright moment there where they thought I was doing all right. My, the, my father's proudest moment of me as an actor was uh, the Twisted Sister video that I did with uh, Lee Snyder. And he never saw it. He was only proud of it because he saw an, or a friend of his saw an article in the newspaper and told him that his son, my work, had been uh, shown on the floor of the Senate. When Tipper Gore did her hearings on <laughs> sex and violence and rock and roll, she showed one of the Twisted Sister videos in its entirety on the floor of the Senate. Therefore, my work is in the Senate record book. Therefore, my father was very proud of me, even though I don't think he would have liked the video if he'd, be, if he'd ever seen it. So. But... So, okay, so you you graduate college. Now, you're living in Michigan. What is your move? Do you decide to go to New York or do you decide to go to L.A.? What do you choose? What what is your passion when you're younger? Theater or TV and movie or both? In 1968, when I graduated from college, there was no lottery. There was still a draft. My draft deferment was up. I did not want to fight in the Vietnam War. very consciously, I didn't want to do it because I thought I probably would, as a white man, I'd be able to do uh, ROTC or I'd be able to go in as a lieutenant, probably because they were looking for officers then. And uh, I, w- I felt that I'd be very good at it, and I didn't want to be good at it. I didn't want to become the person I felt 
I might become if I uh, if I fought in that war. I didn't agree. I didn't like the war. I didn't agree with it. Uh, so I lit out for the hills and uh, California, and ended up in Oregon for a while, and uh, just basically, essentially dodging the draft, uh, avoiding getting the letter to go for the physical. I figured if I didn't get the letter, I didn't have to go. And I didn't get the letter. And then finally, my parents, who I had, who did, had no idea where I was, I sent them a letter asking them to send me a pair of skis that were still in the basement of my house in New Jersey. They sent me the skis, and in the box with the skis in it was the letter from the uh, Selective Service and asking me to go to the physical, and I tried to get into Canada, and I uh, wasn't able to get across the border because I was kind of a mess, uh, living in the hills in Oregon, and uh, so I went back to Newark, and uh, the Army didn't want me by that time. I was, uh, I was, uh, what was I? I guess I was uh, eccentric enough <laughs> that they, uh, to use a, a, a somewhat coy English expression, um, I was eccentric enough that they didn't think they could use me in their army, so they gave me a 4F. And, uh, and then I was headed back to Oregon, but my Jeep broke down in Ann Arbor where I'd gone to college, so I stayed to make some money uh, to fix my Jeep and head on to Oregon, and I started doing some plays, and I was convinced that uh, the theater was a, uh, a thing I could do. And it was, and it was fun. And I, I found that they actually could, would pay me money to do it. And it was fun and I could do it. So I did it. I didn't think of it as a career. I didn't really think of it as a career until I was five or six or seven years in at, into it in New York, uh, working pretty regularly, pretty much whenever I wanted to. And then I looked up one day when I was getting close to 30 and realized that I was getting close to 30 and that uh, I might want to think about my future and uh, that this was something I could do and people seemed to want me to do it and paid me to do it. And so I started taking it seriously and thinking about a lifetime and there you go. That's what I thought. That's what I was thinking when I was young. I was thinking, let's have as much fun as we possibly can. And they call them plays because you play. It's fun. It's supposed to be. Now you're doing that. And now when do you transition? When you, on IMDb, you had a few credits, but then Animal House came on early in your career. I mean, did is that when you moved to LA? And how did that role, how did that audition happen? Uh, I'd been doing a play called Streamers in New York at Lincoln Center at the, uh, the Mitzi Newhouse Theater downstairs. Joe Papp had it at the time, and a play by David Ray. Doing that, I was asked to go do a, a film directed by Fred Zinnemann, a film called Julia in England. So I left that play and did the film in England. I was there for six weeks. I came back. And Michael Chinich, who had seen me in the play, asked me to come in. To, well, my agent su submitted me, and I went in to audition for Animal House uh, for the part of Otter. And uh, I've told this story a million times, but uh, as soon as I walked through the door, John Landis said, do you know how to ride? 
and I'd read the script, so I knew what he was talking about. And I said, of course, I'm going to ride. I've practically been born on a horse. My mother's water broke when she was out on a trail ride on a ranch in Montana. She slid off the horse. My father delivered me right there in the shadow of the horse. He delivered calves. He could deliver a human. And we got back on the horse and rode in. I told this whole long story about how I was born on a horse. And uh, Landis looked at me and said, yeah, right. <laughs> so I told him five more lies about how I knew how to ride. And the next day he called me and asked me to do the part. And I... Uh, I said, great, yeah, sure. Uh, can you see if you can get me some money so I can learn how to ride? <laughs> and I studied at Claremont Stables. Now, I know that's not an answer to your question. I sort of almost by reflex told that story because I tell it all the time because it's a good story. Oh, it's a great story. But <laughs> uh, Animal House wasn't, so Animal House wasn't the first movie I did, but it was certainly one of the most fun movies I did. I mean, Julia, I was cut out of Julia. My name's still in the credits in the end. But at the, like 10 days before it opened, they, uh, Gareth Wigan at Fox insisted they cut 20 minutes out of it. So they cut my entire part. I had one scene with Jane Fonda. And uh, they cut a lot of Meryl Streep out, too, and to get it down. So that was the first movie. And by that time, having worked, I was paid for six weeks. I worked for three days in England. I thought, wow, movies are fun. <laughs> and then Animal House came along soon after I got back from that. And Animal House was a fun script, a great script, a really great experience to shoot it with all with good, solid actors, some of whom I knew, and no, no movie stars or any of that stuff. So he didn't, wasn't all clouded over with celebrity and uh, my trailer's bigger than your trailer kind of bullshit. Sorry, I can't swear. On yeah, you can. You can swear. It's, um, it's internet. Oh, good. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, good. And uh, so I... Uh, uh, I started thinking, well, this is not a bad way. I, you know, and, and it's good stuff. Animal House is a really good script. Julia was a really good script written by, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but a really good script. So I'd been involved in two things that were literary. They had literary value, and that's what I always liked about the theater. Was, I mean, Shakespeare, Chekhov, Ibsen, Miller, Williams, those guys are good writers. They're really writing about the human condition in, in complicated, in ways that are just as complicated as the human condition turns out to be now that I'm a little older and I've experienced some of it. Um, and uh, so I was doing good stuff. So I said, all right, I'll do my, I really refused to do television and movies for the first five or six years that I was in New York. It wasn't until, uh, yeah, it wasn't until Julia that I said yes. And I only said yes, Fred Zinneman, directed High Noon, uh, directed a bunch of other movies, and then uh, this movie, The Animal House, which was a very, very funny script. Now, when you, when you did Animal House, I mean, because it's become an iconic movie. I mean, I remember walking, I remember going to see it at a theater that's no longer there. I moved back to where I grew up, and I remember going to yeah. see it with my friend, and, you know, I think we were, like, in eighth grade, and, you know, we sort of snuck in, but... Did you, when you were on the set, did you think that it would just have such a lasting feeling? And it, it really changed comedies in cinema. It did. I mean, I think it. I think you're right. It did. It really. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's directly out of a Marx Brothers. Uh, it has Marx Brothers as its roots. It has Laurel and Hardy as its roots. It has. It's not like it. It was a brand new form of comedy, but it was it was 
new at the time. It was a it was a, a a revamping or an extrapolation of a kind of a comedy, a chaotic, uh, absurdist comedy that um, had been done before. But it certainly took it to it, it brought it to a new place. It put it into a, you know, a more popular culture uh, vibe. And uh, but no, no, but I don't think. Well, John Landis says that two people read the script and told him it was going to be a really big hit. John Belushi and John Vernon. Um, both of them obviously are dead now and can't deny it. Uh, nobody else nobody else did. I mean, I, we've all talked about it and we nobody thought we don't think that way. You do a job and you do the best job you can and then you uh, go look for another job. And it was a lot of fun. It was a good script. It was a good once we all got together and we saw who we were Did you did you have an idea how big it would become? Oh yeah, no, so nobody did, and it's it's interesting that it is has become. It's forty years ago, as you know, that's why we're here. Uh, that it's become this other thing. It was a great fun making it. Uh, met some really fun, interesting, smart people, and then we, you know, within a couple of years, we realized this. Thing. First, we realized it was a big hit. But that doesn't mean anything to us. None of us had a piece of it. I mean, it's nice to be part of a hit. You get recognized a little on the street. Maybe you get to have a better chance to go get the a, a next job because you're in a hit movie. That's all nice. But basically, we're all trying to find our next job. But 40 years later, we're still talking about it. And we've become friends, at different kind of friends over these 40 years because we get these, these reunions. We do conventions where we sign autographs. We... Uh, do special appearances at Sketchfest in San Francisco this past January. We talk on the radio about it. We tell this story of the making of this movie over and over again, and we compare notes and we listen to each other's stories. We never get a chance to go to a Q&A when uh, McGill and Jamie Widows and Matheson are there and listen to them and Landis and listen to them tell the story about being invited to a uh, fraternity party it's uh, uh, it's worth the plane fare. You have to travel to go see it because they're they're great. They you know they're good actors. They work well together. They listen to each other. They talk to each other, and uh, they tell a great story together. And it's a it's a very very funny and revelatory story. The story of the uh, of them getting lured into a fraternity party that turned into a fight. <laughs> so now, when they were doing research. But uh, so so there's this other experience of, of having lived with this movie for 40 years and lived with these people for 40 years. We, we joke about the 50th reunion. We're all going to get together on walkers. That's 10 <laughs> years from now. And I, I tend to not need a walker by right. that time. But uh, 
still be moving. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, none of us knew it was going to be a big hit, and we're all very grateful that it has been. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting to be involved in something that's still quoted on the floor of the Senate every once in a while, 40 years later. Now, how did it change your career in the fact that your character is a jerk? I mean, now, now were you sitting there after It's a that? matter of opinion, sir. Yeah. <laughs> well, after that, were you getting auditions? What kind of roles were you getting called for? Were people looking for you to play that type of role? Of you know, I mean, I know later you showed up in the Twisted uh, Sister video, but what kind of, right. after it became popular, when you were getting into the audition rooms or getting offered parts, what were the kind of parts you were getting offered? Similar, similar to Niedermeyer. I mean, because they don't have a huge imagination when it comes to casting there. Uh, and also, I, I took myself out of acting for about a year and a half immediate, soon after, very soon after uh, Animal House, because I produced a movie called Chili Scenes of Winter with uh, Amy Robinson, Griffin Dunn, and uh, sort of stopped acting. I acted a small part in that, but uh, I didn't take auditions and didn't do things. Uh, so I took myself out of it. By the time I got back, actually was sitting in my agent's office saying, why isn't there any work, John? And he gets a call, and uh, he says, oh, I'm going to put you on speaker. And he puts the guy on speaker, and the guy says, and John says, ask me that question again. And the guy says, casting director, says, I need a Mark Metcalf type. <laughs> and uh, John Kimball, my agent, uh, smiles at me, smiles at the phone. He says, well, I just have to have Mark Metcalf right here in the room. And he's looking for work. The guy says, no, 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 no. I need a Mark Metcalf type. <laughs> but at that time, they weren't interested in me anymore. They were only interested in people who were younger who could do me or do things, whatever it is they thought I did. So, uh, yeah, so I, I got, I allowed myself, by doing the Twisted Sister video, by doing One Crazy Summer, by saying yes to films that where they'd asked me to do this simil a similar kind of part, I, uh, I allowed myself to be typecast, and it was a little frustrating. I didn't like it because I still wanted to do the fame and fortune is great, and the notoriety is great. There's no doubt about it. It's nice that people recognize you on the street, and they and they still do from that, from Animal House, from uh, Seinfeld, from playing the master in Seinfeld. It's great, but it's really more satisfying, more. I don't know, it gets your blood flowing in a different way to do a good play live in front of people and to feel that that moment, that exchange of energy that happens when you're on stage live in front of somebody trying to make them laugh or cry or think. And so uh, I went back to doing theater and quit acting, or quit doing movies and television unless they asked me and were paying me uh, American money and good American money. Uh, I went to 1999. I kind of retired and started just doing, moved to Wisconsin and started doing plays there. Now, earlier earlier you said, you know, when you went to producing, you left. Why did you leave acting to go into producing? Because it seems you were on a roll and it seems, you know, talking to you, you love the craft of acting. When you went into the producing part, didn't you think you would miss the acting? 
Yeah, I figured I would, but I didn't figure I was giving it up forever. I was only stopping it for a little while. I was young. Well, I was that young. I was 30, but I uh, I was still interested in having fun and doing new things. And uh, and uh, I, I, I measured my life by the number of experience I, as I had, not by the pile of money I had in front of me or the uh, amount of fame I had in front of me. I wanted to get as many different experiences as I could. I had the, this really kind of great relationship with Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson that was uh, a friendship and, and much, much more. And we read a book by Ann Beatty and, and it was a great book called Chili Sins of Winter. And it was a good story and it was really, it spoke directly to us and we felt it would speak directly to, you know, a lot of people our age. Uh, and so it didn't mean that much when you're 30 and think you're still 25 to uh, take a year and a half, two years off. I, I didn't think movies took five years to produce. And we didn't. We, did, we got it done in two years, basically. Uh, but we were unusual. Uh, and we uh, we set out to produce it because we never had. It was something we'd never done. There's a, uh, a thing in England when you see magpies, the bird, the magpie, and you, depending on how many of you see, there's a kind of a poem that goes along with it. One for... Let's see, one for sorrow. Wait, no, who was it? I can't remember. One for a girl, one for a boy. Three for silver, four for gold. Five. Anyway, the, the last one, seven is, uh, or six is, six for a story that's never been told. I'm just because I can't tell a story. But anyway, what you want in your life is to tell stories that have never been told as an artist. You want to create something new and, uh, and have new experiences. And that, that's why I stopped acting to produce, because I, I wanted the experience. Not of producing, I just wanted a new experience. Right. Well, I know that makes sense. You know, we sometimes, you know, and you had just come off a good role, and it's something you want to do, and, and, it, and you seem to enjoy it, but then after a while, you probably said, I'll go back to acting. And now when you went back to acting, we had talked briefly about the Twisted Sister video. Did they contact you to right. be in that? And it's funny is, you know, I try to tell, like, my, my girlfriends and nieces and people that there was a time in in America where videos ruled the TV waves. I mean, I remember when MTV came out, we watched it, and I've had many people in bands on my shows who said, as soon as they did a video, they just, everyone knew who they were. Did Twisted, yeah. did Twisted Sister come to you for that, or did someone say, hey, you know, you know, it was just an idea you had? How did that whole thing become? And you probably got recognized even more because of that video. Yeah, I think more people have seen that video than have seen anything else I've ever done. It, I mean, what, you're right, in the mid-'80s, uh, MTV was all that. Everybody was watching MTV. That video was it was playing like every five minutes <laughs> playing about every five minutes on uh, MTV and uh, it just uh, everybody yeah, everybody saw it I got uh, stopped on the street much more after that video came out I didn't know I didn't even have a television I lived on the Lower East Side and I just for a walk up it was fine it was a great apartment I wish I still had it um, it and I didn't have a TV I didn't know what MTV was I would say I stopped listening to popular music after Beethoven died. Uh, I like jazz, I like the blues, but uh, popular. I certainly didn't know what a band called Twisted Sister. 
somehow tracked me down. They had used the lines of Niedermeyer's. He liked the character Niedermeyer and used the lines of his in their bar act. They were a bar band, basically, up and down the Hudson and all over Long Island. And then they played in England, too, sometimes. They got gigs over there, because a lot of times the English tend to recognize uh, American uh, energy uh, quicker than we recognize it over here. And uh, they called me and asked me if I would do this video. They were going to shoot it in a week or so in Los Angeles. I was in New York uh, doing a play. I said, well, I'm doing this play. And I can't believe it because uh, it's a good play. Uh, but I don't do a show on Monday and Tuesday. Or, or we do a Sunday matinee, no Sunday evening show. So if you can fly me out there on Sunday night, shoot me out and get me back here to do the show on Wednesday night, uh, sure, I'll do it. I had left some stuff in an old girlfriend's apartment out there. I thought I'd give a chance to pick that up. Uh, plane ride is always nice. And uh, so they worked it out. So I flew out there and I shot it. I, I slept on Marty Collins' couch uh, because I didn't have a place. They didn't, couldn't afford to give me a place to live. They paid me uh, a day's wage, SAG a day's wage, but they didn't go through SAG. I got in trouble with SAG for doing a non-union gig. Uh, I got in trouble with Universal for using the character Niedermeyer because it's, uh, it's, you know, they never call him Niedermeyer, but it's very lightly veiled that it's the same character. <laughs> and uh, they, Universal owns it, so they sent me a letter that said, if you do it again, we'll sue you. But a couple of weeks later, I got a call wanting me to do it again. I did it again anyway. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I was daring them to sue me. They never did, but um, it actually worked in their, in their behalf because it promoted the movie more. Because um, it did. It played all the time. Like I said, it played on uh, the floor of the Senate, for God's sakes. Now, how would, yeah. pe how would people react to you when they came up to you? Would they come up to you? I mean, I'm sure you've heard many times people have said pledge pin to you. I'm sure, you know, they've, I mean, how do people react back in the heyday of Animal House and the Twisted Sister video? And thank God there wasn't social media and all this stuff then, else you would be all over. How did, <laughs> I mean, it'd be, it's just, you know, it would be viral. How did people react to you when they met Niedermeyer? Did they, did they sit there and did they think you were that person because I've heard many actors. People come up and they they get confused. Yeah, yeah, they do. They see you, and if you do it well, it's it's very real, and it's very real to them, and they like it, and they do uh, not completely understand that it's an acting job that I'm doing. It. So people are, are confused, but I, you know, I'm a relatively nice person most of the time, and and they're sort of surprised and happy to see that. They're, that I'm as approachable as, because they're, yeah, they approach with this amount of timidity. And then, but also people are very bold and people used to want me to scream, is that a pledge pin on your uniform at them? Or what do you want to do with your life? From the Twisted Sister video, a couple of times, I would, I would go ahead and do it. And people say, no, no, you've got to spit on me. It's no good unless you spit on me because so much saliva is coming out of my mouth. And, uh, so, yeah, one I early on, I lived in Lower East Side. As I said, I used to walk across St. Mark's and pick up the subway at uh, at uh, Cooper Square, 
And right there at the corner of 2nd Avenue, right in front of Jim's Spa, there was always a homeless guy. And when I, I knew him, because I used to see him all the time, and I try not to give them money unless I had a whole lot, because if you give, anyway, it's hard to give one money and not the other money, and there were a lot of homeless people in those days. Anyway, this one guy, every time I'd pass, he would say, you're worthless in a week. <laughs> and I didn't know what he meant. I don't know why he was calling me worthless in a week. Because I didn't connect it, and after several weeks of this, I'm sitting in a bar talking to a guy, telling somebody about this homeless guy who keeps calling me, telling me I'm worthless and weak just because I don't give him money. And the guy looks at me, and my friend looks at me and says, "You idiot! That's from the movie. He's complimenting you. He's quoting the movie." And I so I didn't even know it until my friend told me because I was on to the next thing. You've had you've had a great career. I mean, you've been in so many different shows. I gotta ask you because my new addiction lately is Miami Vice. I tape it. There's a station uh-huh. in Philadelphia called Kazi, and they they play it weird. Like they play it on Tuesday and Wednesday night at like two in the morning, and they play it on Saturday. But none uh-huh. of the seasons are in order. Like I missed season two, so now I have in my DVR some from season three, uh-huh. some from season five. What was your experience in Miami Vice? And now I have to go find that episode because I'm addicted to it. My girlfriend's like, you have like 15 episodes in the DVR. Are you going to watch them? And she'll watch her stuff. And I'll just sit there and kick out like last Sunday. I kicked out like three. And it's great because, you know, they're they're short. But what, what, what was your experience in Miami Vice? Baseballs of Death, I think, is the episode I did with... Uh... That's a role that everybody knows. And it's funny how Seinfeld, you know, my friend was saying how his sons watch it. And, you know, if, if you think about Seinfeld now, if they had cell phones, it would never be a script. But the thing right. is, now the, the kids get that. And they look at it as retro. 
once again, when you went on Seinfeld, did you think people would remember that role? Because it, and they brought you back for a second time. But what was it like on that set? What was it like working on that set? Again, the writing's really good, and it really does start with the writing, all of it. I mean, you can't take bad writing and create an iconic character necessarily. Um, so the writing was really good, and I could tell, and the writers all came up to me and said, you know, would say, this is one of the best characters we've ever created. I mean, I'm not measuring it against anything. I'm just trying to find the best way to play through it, the best line through it, through line through it. And uh, so I just did my job, which is basically simply that, and the writing takes care of the rest, and the fact that it was a hit show. I mean, I was, uh, I think I was in the seventh season, so it was already a hit show. So it was a good show to get, because you know it's going to go into reruns. You know you're going to get paid again when it goes into reruns. Uh, I guess it was probably, it was 97, I think. <laughs> I guess there was already the thing called syndication. There was more channels than just the three that there were when I started. <laughs> Sorry. So we knew it'd go to syndication. So, it, you know, it was good money. It was going to be a good bank job. But I never thought that, that well, I don't know that anybody thought Seinfeld. There used to be a billboard on Fairfax in L.A. heading south. Uh, <laughs> Show you worked on was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, right. You worked right. on Buffy, which yeah, now sweet. that probably introduced you to a whole new crowd because that had a younger crowd than the people that had been watching Animal House and Seinfeld. Right, exactly. It was like a whole other generation, and it was a primarily female crowd because it uh, went such a long way to empower women. Uh, that show, it, it, by design, it did that, and. Uh, through Sarah Michelle's work and uh, Joss Whedon's work, it did that. And it was a, obviously uh, 
an early step in uh, what's now finally becoming a movement with the uh, Me Too movement and Never Again. Um, so, and, and again, really good writing, really good people at the top. I mean, Joss Whedon has proved his uh, genius credentials again and again. And uh, so it's, it's hard. I was acting lucky. I got cast in and allowed to work and allowed to work with some really smart people who really understand how comedy works, how drama works, how the world works, and how humans work, and they're interested in how humans work. And uh, so, yeah, but, but yeah, you're right, Buffy introduced, and, and it's also, because it's vampires, and it hit in America at a time when people got interested in vampires, and got interested in zombies, and I guess people have always been interested in, in horror, in the supernatural, in the paranormal. Uh, I had not been particularly interested in that, but vampires are interesting just as a metaphor and uh, for as a metaphor for sexuality, as a metaphor for you know, a way to deal with death or life. Conversely, uh, or anything, yeah, dealing with life and death is sort of like dealing with the same thing. Um, and uh, so we. Buffy has this other life, this sort of convention life. I'm still invited, and this was, that was like that, 97 too, I think 97, 98. It's still, I mean, I still am invited to go to place I'm going to London in December to a, a convention for just Buffy the Vampire Slayer in London next June. I mean, Paris next June to do a, a special event for Buffy villains in Paris. I believe you moved to Milwaukee yep. to open a restaurant. You had been working. Yep. You had a good career. How how did you how did you make that decision? Because you know you as I said, you've worked on some amazing shows. You've had some iconic characters. You love theater. Acting is in your blood. I mean, we can say you started later, yep. but it was. And to go work a restaurant, it's usually like people work at a restaurant and then they become an actor. <laughs> They're waiting tables. But how did you sit there? Yeah. How did you do that decision? And how did you pick Milwaukee? Well, my wife, the one I was married to at the time, it was from Milwaukee. I had owned I owned some land in Montana, in a little town called Twin Bridges. I I wanted to. She was unhappy in L.A. Uh, she was running all the food and beverage at uh, Universal Studios. It's a commissary, not on the uh, not on the tour, but on the lot. She was managing the restaurant there. It was a big job, a good job, but she wasn't really very happy with it. She's from Milwaukee. She wanted to move back to where her family was. Uh, she's a lot younger than I am. And uh, I wanted to move to Montana, so we compromised, and we did what she wanted to do. We moved to Milwaukee. I bought. I had some money, so I bought a restaurant. It wasn't hard to make the decision because, as I said earlier, even though I was doing good stuff, Buffy and Seinfeld, 
Meyer was in town and they publicized it, which I didn't stop them from doing because it put Sandy's in the seats at the restaurant. He came up and he, he said, I want you to come do a play for me. And I said, I don't want to do children's theater, most endowments and stuff like that. I just quit the business because I'm bored. With it. And I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to put on a funny nose and clown around in front of kids. He said, this is a different play. He gave me a play called Einstein, Hero of the Mind that had been written just for them. It, uh, it took Einstein from the age of about seven when his teachers thought he was retarded because he stammered. And uh, it took him all the way up till after the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki when he basically spent two years going into a, in, in a canoe on a little lake in Princeton trying to figure out his complicity. He had worked on the bomb, but he his science was what enabled them to build the bomb, and he had petitioned Roosevelt to work on a bomb earlier, to encourage Roosevelt to work on a bomb because he felt the Germans were working on one. So he had a lot to, uh, to get over. I, I am the destroyer of worlds, is what Oppenheimer said, I think, uh, quoting the Hindu god Shiva. And um, he realized he'd been involved anyway. So it took Einstein through that arc in his life, and it was myself and a 14-year-old actress and 47 puppets, ranging from 19-inch marionettes to 17-foot-tall, uh, back what they call a backpack puppet, on stage in front of kids and their parents, and kids during the day and then kids and their parents at night. And it was a revelation to me. I was reminded of why I love the zeal because we were telling a really important, vibrant story about uh, the responsibility of science uh, to the community and about an extraordinary human being, Albert Einstein. And we were, t and I was telling it with, with people who were only interested in telling the story. They weren't interested in their careers or in what People Magazine might say about them. We were doing it in Milwaukee. We were doing it small and uh and that was why i got in it at the beginning and so i did it i went on i don't know how many plays i did for first stage but i did a lot and uh i did holes i did uh, uh the giver great time doing the giver did a lot of uh, true confessions of charlotte doyle did a lot of really great fun stuff for them and directed uh, a production of uh the metal lingo uh, Wrinkle in Time, a great fun production of a Wrinkle in Time. We did it on a children's, it was a set of children's playground, which was really great um, location to set that surrealistic play. Um, and, and I had a great time. I reminded myself of how, exactly what you said earlier, that I had forgotten how much I loved acting. I'd forgotten. I'd become, I guess I'd become cynical and disappointed by it. And I'd forgotten why I loved it. But that working with First Stage Children's Theater and working with Rob Goodman, Jeff Frank, who came on, went on and became the artistic director, uh, working with those people really reminded me of what I loved about the theater and about telling stories. Now, with you so, right now, where is your career at? I know, I know you did Mad Men in 2009, oh. but are you still... 
pursuing theater or or what what do you, where are you now? Because I know you you live in Ohio, I believe. Where what what I live is in Ohio. what is your goal well, now? Well, I don't know what it is. I just moved here in January. I'm still trying to figure out where the where you can buy the best baguette, where we make the best pizza, where the good Indian food is, and, uh, and trying to find some friends. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of of good edgy theater here. There probably is, and I'm just not able to find it. So I'm still looking for it to see if there's a theater and a group of people that might want to work with me that uh, they might enjoy working with. Uh, I lived in Missoula, Montana for five years before I moved here, and it took by the, you know, the last year of those five years, I was I did uh, a couple of plays that I'm really, really proud of, a play called Stupid Fucking Bird, a deconstruction of Chekhov's The Seagull, that was, it was really, it's really very funny, very Tukovian, and in that it's funny and that it's dark and that it's violent, which a lot of people miss sometimes because there's this overlay of civility in Chekhov. Uh, and then a play called Love Song. It's just a perfect little play that I did with a company called Bearbait Dance Company, which was a little bit of dance and a lot of theater. Uh, so I, it, but that took me five years of living there before I sort of found the people that I wanted to work with. I'm a slow learner. Slow worker, and as I've said again and again, I'm not so much interested in my career. You ask me, where's my career? I don't have a career. Like, where's my? I'm not interested in my career. What I'm interested in is the work, and that sounds like bullshit, but it's not really. I really like the work. So you know, I'm looking around. If people come and ask me, there's a woman in Chicago, a filmmaker at the. teacher, professor at DePaul University in the film department, whose work I'm working with her writing a short film that she wants me to sort of star in, and it's going to work themes that I'm interested in, so she and I are collaborating. She's writing, but I'm sort of bouncing ideas off of her and sending things back when she writes things, and we're establishing a line and a story for a short film that might be one of three short films. I'm doing that, and another woman, a filmmaker down here, wants to do a documentary just about me talking about performing and about my feeling about performing and about acting. And uh, she's shot, uh, recorded about five hours of video, and she's starting to shoot some uh, of audio, and she's starting to shoot some video. You know, is it? Who knows what level? Two new forms that I haven't, well, short films I've worked in, narrative films. Uh, Shane is more of a of an experimental filmmaker, so two new forms that I'm working in, basically a documentary and then this experimental narrative fusion uh, that I'm working with from Shane and DePaul, and uh, so and I'm producing a movie, or <laughs> I'm executive producer of a movie called The Roberts, based on a graphic novel of the same name about two serial killers in their 80s who meet up in a nursing home when they're sort of too frail to get much done anymore and just living in the past of all their great kills and uh, stand off against each other, sort of circle each other and snip each other out like a couple of dogs in the street and then kind of go uh, mano a mano to see who's the best killer. So it's, it's a comedy. It's a black comedy. Well, but, uh, you got we're, we're trying to raise money. 
Well, you got a lot going on. And I'm going to tell you, for the, yeah, pe for the yeah. pizza... Yeah, I'm working on a book. I'm working on a book about my youngest brother who committed suicide in 46. I'm also working on a book about global jihad. So, yeah, I keep busy. And, and the thing is, I was going to tell you about, you know, if you're looking for the pizza, do what I always do. Just Google, say best pizza in your town, and it will send you to Yelp. Because I know you, you lived in New Jersey for a while, so you know yeah. you know good pizza. Like me, when I was living in L.A. for all those years, everyone would say, where do you get a good Philadelphia cheesesteak? And I said, in, in Philadelphia. And I said, you know, you're not going to find, you know, you're not going to find one in L.A. One of those two places across the corner, across the street from each other, right? Gino's and Pat's. Gino's, that's right. I used to drive down from New York just to That's funny. I used to one for Gino's, and then I'd uh, take a walk around the block and work it off, and I'd go get another one just to see which was the best one. <laughs> I, want to yeah. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time today, Mark. It was great talking to you. You uh, you definitely, definitely had a great career. So people, go to IMDb, check out Mark Metcalf. Um Watch his movies, watch his TV shows, keep up with them, see what's going on. And yeah, so do that. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find almost 700 episodes there. Send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. And Instagram, I'm coopertalk1. And I put some food pictures up there. And the reason is, if you go to my other website, stopthesalt.com, you can buy my cookbook. Remember when I had that heart problem about five or six, it was about six years ago. I wrote a book. It's 120 low-sodium recipes for one. They're easy to make. There's not a whole long list of ingredients. There's no pictures to intimidate you. Because I know, gentlemen, you guys get intimidated when you see a picture and the food looks so good. You're like, I can't make that. So go to StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon. But if you go to StopTheSalt.com, I make more money. So people, check out Mark Metcalf's career. Go check out his work. Go watch Animal House again because it's still a great movie. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.